The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 15 through 28. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 15 through 28. It's already been read for us. That's very helpful. It's a big passage, but it all fits together, and I think it will work best for us to work through the entire passage today. So that's the plan. Uh, among our local body, there are a number of us who have, we have a variety of medical experiences, you could say. Uh, some of us are dealing with significant chronic uh, medical trials as, as it stands right now. Uh, some of us have had some minor, maybe minimally invasive surgeries. Some of us have had major surgeries. Uh, some of us have maybe even not experienced any of those kinds of medical trials, and we only go to the doctor for our basic checkups, and we've never had anything major, no minor surgeries, no major surgeries, no major health ailments. Some of us maybe have never been to a doctor because we don't think it's necessary or because we distrust the medical establishment. I don't know anybody like that in our body, but it could be the case with this number of people. And if you're currently dealing with a complex medical situation where the issue is not easy to solve and there are various factors going on, I think it's safe to say that you would prefer, check that, you would demand that the physician treating you isn't just fresh out of medical school. And that's nothing against medical school students or medical school graduates who have just graduated or those who are presently in their residency. All the great skilled doctors that we know today had to make their way through medical school, they had to go through graduation, and they had to go through the rigor of residency. We know that. But we all recognize that the high levels of skill and competence needed to treat complex medical issues are usually found in those who have years of experience in their field, where they've had an opportunity to develop their craft of medicine with through years of experience. And if you are facing a serious and complicated, uh, complicated medical condition, you want someone like that treating you who has the credentials and a specialization to effectively care for you in your current situation. Well, in our passage today, we're going to meet some medical school graduates, so to speak, the Levitical priests, but we're also going to meet our highly credentialed physician, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are going to study five reasons why Jesus' priesthood, now to switch over to, to switch metaphors, now to his priesthood, We're going to study five reasons why it's greater than the old covenant or Levitical priesthood. He is the highly credentialed physician, you could say, over against the Levitical priest. But before we do that, I just want to say a few things. We're going to do a little review, but even before the review, I want to say a word about why we are doing such rigorous study in a book like this. And it really comes down to one thing, your faith. That's that's really what it comes down to. If those of you who have been with us for the, our time studying Hebrews, you know that Hebrews contains the sharpest warnings that the, the, in all the New Testament. Warnings to not fall away from the living God. Warnings to not fall away from Christ. Warnings to remain in the faith. And we've dealt with how we are to understand those as believers. It's no coincidence at all that the book with the strongest warnings in the New Testament is also the most theological demanding of all the books in the New Testament. Why do we work so hard over complex theological issues like Melchizedek? Couldn't I live without knowing about Melchizedek? Well, apparently not. 
Why do we uh, work so hard over issues about how the Bible fits together and how this Melchizedekian priesthood relates to Jesus' priesthood? You know, what it, you know why? Because when you go deep into the faith, you are guarded from falling away. All of this study that we're doing on the supremacy of Jesus Christ and his priesthood and his covenant and who he is and how he's better than Moses and he's better than the angels and his covenant is better than the old covenant and his priesthood is better than the old covenant priesthood. Why do we do that? Why are we doing that? For your faith. And that will become clear when we step into Hebrews chapter 11. We will see that it is all about the faith of God's people and sustaining that faith and feeding that faith. And in order to root us in a persevering faith, we need to go deep into theology. And that's precisely why the author of Hebrews is both the book with the most serious warnings and the book that is the most theologically demanding, I would argue, in all the New Testament. So that was just a brief word. That's not even in my notes. I wanted to say that this morning. I thought of it uh, earlier this week, didn't have a chance to put it in my notes, but I want us to reflect on why it is that we're working so hard in a book like this. It's to keep us in the faith. It's to root you in the faith. It's to strengthen your faith. Now a little bit of review. Last time we were in the book of Hebrews, we were talking about that unheralded, unheralded character in the Old Testament named Melchizedek. You find him in Genesis 14, and you find him only again in Psalm 110. And the author of Hebrews has been really kind of expositing, you could say, the, uh, the phrase out of Psalm 110 that says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's, he's been treating that in various ways and expositing it and examining it, examining it. That phrase comes out of Psalm 110, which is a psalm about the coming priest king, the coming Messiah. He's not only a king, but he is a priest. And if you are a Jewish reader at the time, and you would read Psalm 110, and you would read about the coming Messiah who's after the order of Melchizedek, you would scratch your head and be like, wait, there's only one place I know of in all the Old Testament scripture where Melchizedek is mentioned, and it's Genesis 14. And that's exactly where the author of Hebrews goes. He takes us to Genesis 14, and he shows us that after a military victory that Abraham had, he was met by this person named Melchizedek. Who is he? Well, we don't really know. All we know was that he was the king of Salem, and his, the translation of his name means king of peace. That's after the author of Hebrews is examining the details of Genesis 14. But we learn there he is a priest, He's the king of a nearby city called Salem. And when he meets Abraham, he blesses Abraham. And then Abraham gives him a tenth of everything that he owned. And that's it. That's all we know in Genesis 14. So then the author of Hebrews examines the details of that narrative in Genesis 14. And he shows us that there's a significance in his name. He's Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. That's interesting. And he's also... The king of Salem, and Salem means peace, and so he's the king of peace, and so the author of Hebrews is trying to show us that there's something significant going on with this Melchizedekian uh, person in Genesis 14. Well, what's the significance? The significance is tied to Psalm 110. Our new priest king, he's from the order of Melchizedek. And not only that, that episode in Genesis 14 showed a number of important things, namely that Melchizedek, this Melchizedekian priest-king, he was actually greater than Abraham, believe it or not. Abraham, the one to whom God made all the promises, Melchizedek's greater 
than Abraham because he blessed him and received tithes from him. But not only that, the Levitical priesthood who would come out of Abraham, Abraham was Levi's great-grandpa, the Levitical priesthood who would come out of Abraham actually gave tithes to uh, Melchizedek in the loins of Abraham. So when Abraham gave tithes, Levi was giving tithes and demonstrated that this priesthood was greater than the Levitical priesthood because it was the Levites who received the tithes. In Abraham, Levi pays the tithes to Melchizedek, demonstrating before the Levitical priesthood is even established, before the Old Covenant is even established, that the Melchizedekian priesthood was superior to the Levitical priesthood. And that's all very significant. Again, that's, that's some rigorous biblical theology, and that's all very significant because the recipients of this letter were being tempted to go back to the Old Covenant. And the author's saying, listen, from Genesis 14, the Old Covenant has had something superior to it, namely the Melchizedekian priesthood. Jesus Christ is the priest king of Psalm 110 who is in that priestly line of Melchizedek. His priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Therefore, Jesus' covenant is superior to the Old Covenant. The covenant that Jesus is bringing, that new covenant, his covenant is superior to the old covenant. The conclusion, therefore, that his readers must draw is there's no reason in the world why you would ever dream of going back to the old covenant. There's no reason at all. And not only that, but he makes this stunning statement here in, earlier in uh, verses 11 through 14. He says, in uh, verse 12, he says, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. We'll get to this in a little bit. But the law and the Levitical priesthood were so intertwined that if you took away the Levitical priesthood, you changed the entire Old Covenant. But not only that, he also bolsters his argument by saying in verse 14, It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah in connection with with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So here we have a priest who's in the order of Melchizedek. He doesn't even come out of uh, Levi in terms of his genealogy. And all of that should be demonstrating to us that his covenant is superior, there's a change in the law, and there's no reason whatsoever to go back to the old covenant. Well, that brings us to our passage for today, verses 15 and following. And the first point in your outline is Jesus' priesthood is built on his indestructible life. The title of our sermon today is Jesus Christ, a better high priest. And I'm going to give us five reasons from this passage that demonstrate why Jesus' high priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. Let's look at verse 15. It doesn't matter what version you're reading. It's not immediately clear the connection that the author is making between this passage and the previous passage. It says in the ESV, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. That's the ESV. The NASB says, and this is clearer still. The NIV says, and what we have said is even more clear. And then the CSB says, and this becomes clearer. And I looked at all those versions and say, well, that doesn't help me. I, what, I want to know what the this is referring to. That's what, I, what becomes more clear. This becomes more clear. Well, I think it actually does become clear as you work your way through the passage. That's what we're going to do. So it says, This becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, 
who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Remember in verse 14, he said that the Lord Jesus did not come out of the line of the priests. In order for you to be a priest in Israel, it's not as though you had to have some uh, special credentials. You had to run around the camp 10 times and do 100 push-ups in under a certain amount of minutes. That wasn't what was required. What was required is that you're just a Levite. That's all. And if you weren't a Levite, you couldn't serve at the altar. Well, Jesus didn't come out of Levi. He came out of Judah. He's a Judaite. Judaite. It says something else had to qualify Jesus here. His priesthood was not based on a genealogical line. It wasn't based on a legal, physical descent. It says here, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What's his priesthood based on? His indestructible life. There's no legal basis for him to be a priest according to the Old Covenant. If you're looking at the Old Covenant and if you're looking for a legal basis for Jesus to be a priest, you wouldn't find any because he doesn't come out of the correct line. He doesn't, he's not a Levite. He comes out of Judah. And this is what's so vital about that point. Back to verse 12. If, if that is the case, if there's no legal requirement that Jesus is fulfilling in becoming a priest, a high priest, you can know for certain that the law has changed. Verse 12 again. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law. The word for law there in verse 12 is the same word for legal in verse 16. You could just say like this, the law of physical requirement, like the New American Standard does. Quote, and this is clear still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek who, be, who has become not such, not on the basis of the law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. We're no longer talking about a priest coming out of a particular genealogical line. Jesus messes that all up by coming out of Judah. It's not, it's not a mess, really. It's actually intentional here. But the point is simply to say that by doing that, he overturns the entire Old Covenant in terms of its obligations now. It's changed. It's, it's set aside, you could say. So what does the this refer to in verse 15? I believe it refers to the fact that the law has changed. This has become more evident. The law has changed. And this is vital for New Covenant believers. The law has changed. You are no longer under the obligations of the Old Covenant. You couldn't be. The high priest is completely different. You don't have a Levitical high priest, therefore no Old Covenant. our, Our priest king does not gain his priesthood from Levi. He didn't even come out of Levi. His priesthood is out of the line of Melchizedek, therefore the law has been changed forever. And we do not base his role on that genealogical requirement. We base it on something else, namely the power of an indestructible life. You are a priest forever. See, when Jesus rose from the dead, his priesthood is now permanent. It does not stop like the old covenant priesthood would. You, you, you were a priest, you would serve for a few years, and then when you died, your priesthood was, your role was forfeit, not with Jesus The basis for his priesthood is not the genealogical line out of Levi. It's his indestructible life by way of his resurrection. 
But because of this change, we can know that the law has changed forever. The old covenant as a system and the priesthood are inextricably linked. If you remove the priesthood, guess what? You no longer have the old covenant. You could say that the priesthood, that old Levitical priesthood, that's actually essential to the old covenant. And what do you mean when you say something is essential? What, is you, what do you mean when you say a part is essential to a whole? What you mean is, is if you take that part away, you no longer have the same entity as you did before, right? That's what, that's what we mean when we say something is essential to something else. As an example, a, a basketball is essential to the game of basketball. If you substituted a basketball with a baseball or a football, it might be entertaining, but it's no longer basketball, Right? The, the basketball is essential to the game of basketball. You, you take it away and you've changed it completely. It's a, it's a whole new game now. Uh, another example. Uh, chocolate chips are essential to chocolate chip cookies, by definition. If you take away the chocolate chips and you replace them with raisins, you no longer have chocolate chip cookies. You have an abomination is what you have. <laughs> so... So we understand what the, what the word essential means. If the Levitical priesthood is essential to the Old Covenant, you take away that priesthood and you replace it with something else like a Melchizedekian priesthood, you no longer have the Old Covenant. You have something completely new. And while those are two actually negative examples, probably the best way to illustrate it would be to, to do it in reverse and say if you have raisin cookies, you replace those with chocolate chip cookies, you have something new and something better. And so... That's how we should understand. Yeah, exactly. You can clap, you can clap for that. And that's all right. Um, um, and don't try to fool people with raisin cookies. That itself is an act of, of, uh, of defiance. Well, we could get into that. We'll get into that later. Um, if you remove the Levitical priesthood from the Old Covenant, you no longer have the Old Covenant. And so what this is doing is it's undermining those who are trying to creep into this congregation and persuade them to go back to the Old Covenant. Their response would be, among other things, listen, we don't even have the Levitical priesthood anymore. That's been replaced, therefore the law has changed, therefore the Old Covenant has changed. And and now we need to know why or how it has changed, and that's our next point. What's the second reason that Jesus' priesthood is better than the Old Covenant priesthood? Jesus' priesthood gives us direct access to God. In verses 18 and 19, the author is going to explain to us exactly how the law has changed. How has it changed? Listen to this. If it wasn't in the Bible, it would be hard to believe sometimes. Listen to verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment, namely the Old Covenant, that's just a a shorthand for the Old Covenant, is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. That's the Old Covenant he's talking about. That elaborate, handcrafted, so to speak, covenant that God had given to his people. It's set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. How could he say such things? Well, he says similar things like this in uh, chapter 8, verse 13. We'll see this next week. He says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, the old covenant, obsolete. So how has the law changed? It's changed by it being set aside. The word that is translated set aside here is actually a word that means when a a law is annulled. 
It's annulled. It's obsolete. It's useless. How could you say something like that, something so harsh about God's hand-delivered, elaborate covenant sacrificial system? Well, he tells us why you could say that. Because the law made nothing perfect. The Old Covenant, despite its good laws, despite its elaborate sacrificial system and priesthood, despite the fact that God personally delivered it through angels to his people, his chosen nation, it could make nothing perfect in and of itself. Listen, God saw the faith of his believers in Israel and he did forgive them of their sins, but in and of itself, the Old Covenant couldn't forgive sin. It couldn't actually cleanse the sinner from sin and cleanse the conscience. Hebrews 9 makes that clear. It, the Old Covenant couldn't, finally, couldn't offer final and lasting forgiveness of sins. Actually, the sacrificial system in Israel was a constant reminder of sins. Why? Because you always had to be sacrificing and sacrificing. Well, here we go again. I'm a sinner and it requires blood sacrifice. Well, here it goes again. Another year, another week, another day, more sacrifices, more blood. Why? Well, because I'm a sinner and I always need to have my sins forgiven and I always need to have a substitute and blood always needs to be spilled. And so actually what the Old Covenant is doing is reminding you of sin over and over and over. And the Old Covenant sacrificial system couldn't satisfy God's righteousness because the sacrifices were merely animals, right? Right? And for that reason, the Old Covenant couldn't provide God's people with immediate personal access to God. Access to God had to be mediated through a priesthood, and it happened in the tabernacle or in the temple. And it had an elaborate, ongoing sacrificial system. That's how you had communion and fellowship with God. The Old Covenant law could not perfect anything. It had a built-in deficiency, really. A built-in deficiency, a built-in expiration date. It couldn't perfect anything. That's why the author of Hebrews can say such strong things. It is weak. It is useless. Remember, if you're tempted to go back to the Old Covenant, you're tempted to go back to something that is weak and useless and annulled and obsolete. His goal is to to get these readers to, to shift and to leave the Old Covenant far behind. But... Our new covenant, our Melchizedekian covenant, you could say, this priesthood, look at what he says. He contrasted it in the latter part of verse 19. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And he's already talked about these things with regard to Christ. Because Christ is the perfect sacrifice, because he took his own blood into God's very presence, not merely here in a temple, but up in a heavenly throne he actually brings himself into God's very throne room he brings the sacrifice into God's very presence it's a once for all sacrifice in his own blood therefore he provides his people with 24 7 365 day access to God and you don't need to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem or to the temple in order to have relationship with God right now why because Jesus's priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. You don't need another human mediator to go between you and God. You have it in the Lord Jesus, who is both God and man. And he takes you directly into God's presence right now, if you know him. If you know Christ, you can go right into your father's throne room and start making requests and start having fellowship with him right now. You don't need a priest to be in God's presence. You don't need a priest to facilitate some elaborate 
sacrificial scheme for you to be in communion with God. You have in Christ all you need for full, unhindered access to God all the time. And just to kind of apply this to our our present day, while it's clear that the Roman Catholic Church has formalized teaching that exalts mere human uh, mediators to go between us and God, like a priest or canonized saints or even Mary, that's, that's formalized Roman Catholic teaching that it's easy, easy to take shots at. And you should, because it's, it's false teaching. We don't need a human mediator. We have all we need in Jesus Christ. You don't need a priest to take you into God's presence. Guess what? You also don't need a pastor to take you into God's presence. Pastors are not in a way, they do not mediate God's presence to you in a special way by virtue of our position. We mediate God's presence to you the only way that it is possible through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and any Christian can do that. That's actually why all Christians are called priests in the book of Revelation. You can mediate God's presence to anyone if you want to. All you have to do is preach the gospel of Christ and tell them about the one true mediator, the Melchizedekian priest who is better than the Levitical priest. I just wanted to let you in on that little important fact. Pastors do not mediate God's presence to you in a special way by virtue of their position. They mediate God's presence in the way that all Christians mediate God's presence, namely through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is through our Melchizedekian priests that we draw near to God, and that's what the author is saying. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And we can draw near to God because, as we'll see in the next three points, Jesus' priesthood is sealed with an oath. It's permanent and it is perfect. Let's look now at how it is sealed with an oath. This is verses 22 through 20, or verses 20 through 22. Verse 20, and it is not without an oath. Very straightforward statement here. And he's contrasting it with the Old Covenant Levitical priests. They were, their priesthood was never sealed with an oath. God did never, he never turned to any one of the Levitical priests and said, I swear you are a priest forever. He never turned to Aaron or his sons and said, I swear you are a high priest forever. That was never the case in Israel. And he couldn't do that anyways. Why? Because these priests were mere men. They were sinners. Their priesthood couldn't last forever because they would have to follow the fate of every son of Adam, which was death. He couldn't have sworn that way. The only way you can swear an oath that you're going to have a priest forever is if that that priest can hold his position forever. Right? And so here he's saying that the, the, the Jesus' priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood because it is sealed with an oath, unlike the Levitical priesthood. It was never sealed with an oath. After Jesus made the sacrifice and died for sinners, not as a sinner, he rose again from the dead, never again to die. Therefore, his priesthood lasts forever. The conclusion that we're meant to draw from this distinction between the Old Covenant priests who didn't have an oath in in their assignment, and Jesus, who did receive an oath in his priestly assignment, is that Jesus, he he tells us the the point, verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor or the guarantor of a better covenant. That's the conclusion. What, what What is he talking about here? Well, the word guarantor means that Jesus himself is the one By his priesthood and his priestly work, he is the one who guarantees that the promises of the new covenant have been and will be fulfilled. In him, they are all fulfilled. 
See, the old covenant priests never really fulfilled anything. That's why they were doing it over and over and over. Jesus steps in and he offers a once-for-all sacrifice. The sacrifices are done. The bloodletting is done. The slaughter is done. No longer do you need to be reminded constantly of your sin, for it has been paid for once for all in Jesus Christ. You know, some of us like to dwell on our sin. We like to just think about it all the time and wallow in despair. That's not the aim of the new covenant. Yes, we should be brokenhearted over our sin, but true brokenheartedness, I think, only comes when you're able to see that your sin has been paid for in, complete, in its uh, completeness. So that you actually can confess your sins fully to God and be brokenhearted over your sins without worrying about His condemnation. In Christ, all the promises of the new covenant have been and will be fulfilled. There are still some promises we're awaiting for fulfillment. But the point is is that because Jesus' priesthood is sealed with an oath and because it lasts forever, He is the guarantor of a better covenant, a better way of relating to God, a better relationship and an unending one. And actually, we'll find out that chapters 8, 9, and 10 are a, an exposition of how Jesus' priesthood relates to his new covenant. And so we look forward to that as we go through chapters 8, 9, and 10. But the conclusion that we must draw here is that because Jesus' priesthood is sealed with an oath, his covenant must be better than the old covenant. So then the question is, is Come on, guys, what are you doing being tempted to go back to the Old Covenant? Jesus is much better. He's infinitely better. Well, tied to this, verses 23 through 25 tell us that Jesus' priesthood is better because it's permanent. It's permanent. We've already touched on this. We'll just say a few things. The former priests, it says in verse 23, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Over the course of Israel's history, there have just been countless priests over and over and over, right? So not only do you have a repetition of sacrifices, constantly churning out these uh, bloody sacrifices, but you also had a constant turnover of priests. A priest would be born into the Levitical line, he'd be trained up and raised up, he'd serve for a certain amount of time, he'd retire when he was 50, and then he could only assist at the altar, and then some, at some point after his retirement, he would die, whatever age, and the moment he died, guess what? His priesthood was over. He didn't take it with, him, with, with uh, himself into heaven. The moment he died, his priesthood, priesthood was over. After the Levitical priest died, after the high priest died, guess what? You, need, you went looking for another high priest. Jesus, however, he never relinquishes his priestly office. He exercises it now, and he's been exercising it for the last 2,000 years. Actually, Jesus' death is the way in which he fulfilled his office as high priest. His death doesn't keep him from serving as high priest. It's actually what fulfilled his office as high priest. After he offered the perfect sacrifice on the cross, and after he was buried, he rose again, and now he serves as priest for all eternity. The Melchizedekian priesthood is superior because the priest can never die and never will die. And this is a beautiful, beautiful thing because verse 25 tells us the results of this. Consequently, and I think 
So many of us love this, the power of this verse. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. What does that mean? What does it mean to save to the uttermost? It means to just save completely, that's all. Jesus does not leave anything out when he saves. His priesthood is sealed with an oath. It's permanent. He's been raised from the dead. His sacrifice is perfect. It covers all sin. Therefore, he is able to completely save anybody who comes to him. Nothing will be left out. He's provided everything you need for your salvation. You You need righteousness? He'll impute it to you. You need heart cleansing? He'll take care of that with his Holy Spirit. You need to be raised from the dead? Check that. He's been raised from the dead. You need right standing with God? He'll do that through his death and resurrection. He covers everything that you need. By providing a one-time sacrifice that removes, listen, these are important words, removes totally and forever a person's sin from their record. Totally and forever. You have to continue to remind yourself of this. We're going to remind ourselves of this when we take the table. We are so wired to look at our sin and start to wonder, how could it be that Christ has covered all of this? And we have to go back to these passages and remind ourselves that, in fact, he does. The, the new covenant in his blood has totally and forever removed a person's sin from their record. If they have believed in him through his perfect atoning sacrifice. And he's living right now. And he's going between God and sinners right now. Providing full forgiveness of sin, full access to God. And eventually, a final salvation where we will be made perfect and sinless forever. I forgot to mention, so you need perfection? Oh yeah, he'll provide that too. There's coming a day when you will no longer sin. And I long for that day, I'm sure you do as well. Well, he provides that. But how is he able to do that? Well, according to this passage, he's able to do it because he is alive. He always lives. He always lives. He's alive to make intercession for them. This intercession here, I believe, refers to the intercession he makes with his atoning sacrifice. That intercession now is, is complete. There is no longer any need for any further death or bloodletting. His intercession is perfect. He is now standing between us and God, and God now views us as fully forgiven. But he's able to do this because he is alive. And I love this because people's regeneration and being raised from death to life and being made new creatures, it's all evidence that Jesus is alive. The regeneration and heart change and life change, it's all real. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're checking Christianity out or whatever your situation is or you've been skeptical. The, the realities of being born again and being made new and, and, and these kinds of things they're not just some sort of religious rhetoric. They are realities and they are evidence that Jesus himself is alive and saving people. He is able to do this because he is alive. He's able to provide a full, complete salvation because he is alive. A person's salvation is evidence of Jesus' resurrection and his resurrection is exactly what enables him to provide salvation to guilty, desperate sinners like me and you. Well, Jesus' priesthood is also better than the Levitical priesthood because it's perfect, and that's verses 26 through 28. It's perfect. I couldn't think of a better word. It's perfect. I think that's what this text is getting at. 
That's perfect. God's people have always needed saving. From the beginning, from the moment that Adam sinned, God's people have always needed saving. Our sin has always made us liable to God's judgment, and it's infected our hearts to make us hate God. We need salvation. Israel needed salvation. And God gave them a temporal means of having communion and fellowship with him and receiving his blessings, but it was only a picture of what all of humanity really needed. A sacrificial system that was managed by sinners could not provide God's people with the salvation salvation they needed. And it can't provide us with the salvation that we need, can it? But Jesus can. That's why it says here in verse 26, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. It was fitting. What does fitting mean? It means right. It means appropriate. When we say something is fitting, we mean that something corresponds with a particular set of circumstances. For example, it's, say, it's, it's fitting to say thank you when you've been blessed by someone with a gift. To say thank you corresponds with the circumstances. It's fitting. It's fitting, I think, to wear some nice special clothing to a wedding because the wedding is a special one-time celebration. It's just fitting. I don't think it would be fitting to walk into a wedding in your pajamas. It's just it's not fitting. It is fitting when you are a student in a classroom to give respect to your teacher. It is unfitting. We all recognize it's unfitting to disrespect your teacher. It's fitting for children to obey their parents. It's fitting for leaders to be respectable and dignified and so on. In each example, the action corresponds with the circumstances. Here it is fitting that we should have such a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted to the heavens. We need forgiveness. So it's fitting that we get a one-time perfect sacrifice of atonement. We need a high priest who can satisfy God's righteousness. We needed someone who could fulfill all that the old sacrificial system required and pictured. Therefore, we need someone who's like us in our humanity, but not like us in our sin, which is precisely why he he says it's fitting that we should have such a high priest who is holy, who is innocent, who is unstained, who is separated from sinners. And not separated from sinners as though he wants nothing to do with sinners, but separated from sinners in terms of his own sin. Jesus is not a sinner. Tempted in all ways that we are, yes, but without sin, the author of Hebrews has already made clear. Only someone like that could be our high priest, who could be our sacrifice. Because Jesus was holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners, he only needed to offer one sacrifice for the sins of his people, unlike the Levitical priests. Verse 27, he has no need, no need, like those high priests, the Levitical Old Covenant priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Because he was holy and unstained and separated from sinners and undefiled, he could offer a perfect sacrifice to God, cover all the sins of his people, and end it in one fail swoop. The work is now finished. That is what Jesus finished on the cross. When he said, it is finished, that's what he finished. And he could only finish it because he was holy and innocent and undefiled. And he's exalted to the heavens now so that he can now call out to sinners to be reconciled to God because he's provided the perfect sacrifice. You don't need to go anywhere else. No other religion, no other practices, 
faith in Jesus alone. Verse 28. For the law appoints, the old covenant law, it appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. The old covenant system was imperfect because it was built around imperfect priests and insufficient sacrifices. Our priest, however, is God's very son who obeyed God as the incarnate God-man here on earth in real time fulfilling all righteousness. That's why he says, who has been made perfect forever. It's forever. It's not as though the son of God was imperfect and then he was made perfect throughout his life. No, that's not what happened. In his humanity, he needed to become a fitting high priest for sinful humans, which required him, it required him to obey God as a man in real time. In order to be a sacrifice for us, he needed to experience and resist temptation as a man. He needed to fulfill all righteousness as a man, as a human living in this fallen world, obeying God's commandments perfectly at every moment, loving his Father with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and all of his strength, at every moment. And then he needed to go to the cross as the unblemished Lamb of God. All of this had to be done as a man so he could stand in our place for the, as the final sacrifice for sins. That's why it says he was made perfect forever. It was through his work as a human here on earth. And he is now our fitting or our perfect high priest. And then he needed to be exalted to the heavens, as it says back in verse 26. He needed to be exalted to the heavens so then he could now dispense grace upon whoever who would call upon him in faith. And that's where he is now. He's been exalted and raised to the heavens. He is real. He is the real Lord and Savior. And he gives grace to whoever will call upon him in sincere and repentant faith. This is our Savior. He is infinitely better than the Levitical priests. He is sinless. He is untainted by even a hint of sin. So he's able to stand in our place. He can fully satisfy God's justice. His death on the cross was a sacrifice of full atonement, and it never needs to be repeated. It only now needs to be applied to the heart by faith. No repetition of the sacrifice, just receiving of its completion by faith. So I would just encourage you to ask God for faith to believe these things. These are deep and weighty truths, but they are given so that we would persevere in the faith. So that our faith would be deep and not tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. These truths are food and drink for the soul. They really are. They're balm to the wounded conscience. You know what a wounded conscience needs? It needs the truth that Jesus' sacrifice is perfect and never needs to be repeated. That on the cross Jesus Christ paid for all of my sins. And that I am completely forgiven that there's not some practice I must fulfill now in order to secure my salvation. Christ has fulfilled it on my behalf. So these truths are tonic for our doubts. They are medicine for our spiritual illnesses. And these will keep us persevering in the faith. That's the design of this book of Hebrews, I believe. There's no one like Jesus. There's salvation in no one else. And there's forgiveness of sin in no one else. And I would just ask you, if you're here today, and you've not believed in Christ, my question to you would be, why not? You've heard enough even in this sermon to trust in Christ and to repent from your sins. 
There's no reason to not trust in Christ even today. So the encouragement, the exhortation, the command of Scripture is to be saved today, to repent from your sins and to trust this perfect high priest even today. There's no other way to God. And to the the believers here, I would say, be encouraged by your high priest. He has done all that you need. Now you can go to him at any point, at any moment of the day. You can pray to your heavenly father, knowing that your sins are forgiven. That there is nothing that stands between you and your father in terms of the need for forgiveness of sin. Christ has accomplished all. So would you go to him? If you're, if you're finding yourself in a place of, of stubborn sin, would you go to Christ and confess your sins even today? Would you go to your heavenly Father and seek the cleansing that comes from believing in this perfect sacrifice, confessing your sins and receiving the forgiveness that is promised to you in that new covenant? If you come to Jesus Christ in faith, he will save you to the uttermost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our perfect high priest. His priesthood is sealed with an oath. It's permanent. It's perfect. It is, it changes everything. The law, the old covenant law is no longer in effect. We have no obligation to it. Jesus Christ has fulfilled all in our place All that is left is to believe in Jesus, to turn away from the sin that offends you and to trust in that perfect sacrifice which cleanses our hearts from sin, which removes it from our record so that we may never be charged with it for all eternity. God, I pray for those who are believers who are struggling with a stubborn sin or maybe even the guilt of sin that you would give them Grace today to believe these beautiful truths about the Lord Jesus and the sufficiency of his sacrifice. And then I pray for those who are currently unbelieving that you would work in their spirit through this word. Save them even today. Let us see the the miraculous new birth and the power of Jesus in the life of a former unbeliever. Even today, Lord Jesus, we ask you for it in your name. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.